We've been leading up to the time of Easter in um, Mark's Gospel for the past uh, few weeks. And um, you, if you think we're missing some bits, we missed the Last Supper, but you'll be able to go on to the website and, or on the podcast and you'll hear Ned down at Deer and Bandy preach on that this morning. And then next week we'll talk about Peter and his denial of Jesus and the trial of Jesus, and then uh, we go through, of course, to the, the death of Jesus uh, on Easter Sunday. But today we're looking uh, particularly at uh, what happens in the Garden of Gethsemane. So Mark 14, verse 32. If we've got, can we get that? Mark 14, 32. Um, they went to a place called Gethsemane. And Jesus said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James and John along with him and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little farther, he fell to the ground and he prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said. Everything is possible with you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Could you keep watch for one hour? Sorry, couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more, he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he said he he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Look, the son of man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared With him was a crowd of armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal to them. The one I kiss is the man, arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to catch me? Every day I was teaching you in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled, that everyone deserted him and fled. A young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. If you want to give meaning to that very last bit, just so you can get it out of your heads. Most people think that that was actually speaking of Mark himself. They grabbed him by the clothes, he pulled through the clothes and run off. And that's how, he's the only one who includes that bit. And so that's Mark who's writing the story, just for your interest. Okay, I've been trying for some time to do a three-point sermon. I keep getting four points or seven points. So today I've I've managed to come through with this. So you're going to be happy with this. And uh, I'm going to tell you what they are and then we'll go through them. The first point is this. Human confidence and human promises and human strength 
will always fall massively short. Secondly, the depth of Jesus' suffering shows the fullness and completeness of his obedience and his resolute will. And point three, the depth of his suffering shows the fullness of atonement. I've used some big words in there, but don't worry, we'll explain them as we go. But uh, to begin with, human self-confidence, human ability, human promise-making. How many people here have made a promise that they haven't kept? Maybe not a promise to... Well, we all have done that. What about the many promises we make to ourselves? I will change. I will not do this anymore. I will do this. How many of us have failed on basically every account? Well, I'll just speak for myself. Yes. Um, Do you ever think that there's this sin that you want to overcome yourself? How do you go with that? Hmm. We fall massively short. That's what happened with Peter, James and John. Sit there, sit there and pray with me. And uh, he says he is deeply distressed. That story, he didn't say that. They can see it. He is deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Now, if we are here last week, remember Mark 13, about seven times or something during that whole chapter, Jesus says, watch, keep watch, stand firm, watch. The times are near, keep watch, yeah? So he says it again. Stay here and keep watch. And you know how they went with that, don't you? Not great. Interesting that it's Peter, James and John. We know that they were kind of three that Jesus really kept close to him and they were also really three leaders in the, in the church uh, as the church began. But they are also three people who made some pretty strong promises. Peter had just said, even if all fall away, I will not. And then he goes to sleep when Jesus says, pray with me. James and John had said in Mark chapter 10, I, we can drink the cup of suffering that you will drink. Yeah. We've got what it takes. I, I, to be fair to them, at the time they had no clue what Jesus was going to go through. But those promises, they fell way short. They had no ability even to pray for an hour, let alone to suffer as he suffered. To follow Jesus is to share in his sufferings. We actually told that in the New Testament. Later... Um, they would all suffer. All of the disciples suffered. Uh, most were killed for their faith, all by one, uh, which is John, but he suffered greatly because of this. Now, but at the time in Gethsemane, this self-confidence is shown for what it really is. They fell asleep three times. He came back and found them asleep. Couldn't you even keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That's the sum up of what I'm talking about here. Yes, yes, I want to do this, but the flesh is weak. We can't carry it through. Human strength is not strong enough, not even for one hour. We think 
and we hear all the time, you can do anything you put your mind to. Yep, you can achieve anything. And we tell all of our school children that they can change the world. <laughs> really, 7 billion people changing the world. That's assuming that the 7 billion, well, it's probably not all children. It might only be 1 billion children. Assuming that all that 1 billion children think exactly the same thing about changing the world for good. Yeah, right. And assuming that those 1 billion children aren't all selfish to the core and sinful like everybody else, which they are, do you understand? We have this bravado of human nature which says we can do it. And we have this confidence. We have this very willing spirit. But we fall short on every resolution and every promise and every vow because the flesh is weak. Our flesh is not capable of carrying through, let alone the, the law of God and the perfection of God. If we think we can achieve that, well, of course, we're dreaming. But if you can even achieve the perfection that you have in your mind of who you should be, you're going to fall well short of that too. Do you understand that? We cannot overcome, if we talk about sin, by our mind power, by our willpower, or any other thing that we dream up in our head, we cannot overcome sin. We can't do it because our flesh is weak. We may desire to follow Jesus, and hopefully we do, to follow Jesus wherever. But when we make promises, we fall short. We do not have the strength. If I just think about it like this, Sorry, some visitors don't know me. But if, if I made a promise to you to protect and save you, do you really believe that I could do that? I have no chance of it, do I? You know me. Yeah, yeah right. You know, you, you, not just my weaknesses, but my sin. Now, saying this, some people will say, well, yeah, you're, you're taking away from human glory. You're, you're depleting our dignity. But, you know, this is actually putting a person in the right place. It's not destructive. It's saying you need to know where you are so that you admit the truth about your own inability and your own sin so that you can trust in him. And whilst you're putting your trust in yourself, you can't trust in him. Remember the testimony of our friend um, Cole. Cole uh, was brought up in... Uh, Chinese Buddhism, He's, he lives in Dhirambandi, and he's, he was taught to trust in himself, that you could do anything through positive thinking and the like. And he said in his testimony when he was baptised a year and a half ago or so, the hardest thing in my life to do was to stop trusting in myself and to trust in Jesus. But you see, you can never really be saved until you do that. Until you admit, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. It's not when I'm weak, then God makes me really strong to do everything I want. It's when I'm weak, I rely completely on him and then I'm strong because everything I do is in him. Does that make sense? We admit our weaknesses and that actually puts us in the best place we can ever be because then we rely on his grace. That's why Paul says... But the grace, by the grace of God, I am what I am. That by God's gift to me, I am what I am. What is he? He's preaching the gospel. And his grace would, in, to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. 
Oh, that's good. So he's working harder than anybody. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was in me. You see, what he's learned is that he is weak. And when he is weak, he relies totally on God. And then when God's working on him, he does lots. Do you understand? I'm not saying uh, human beings are useless and will never achieve anything, but we will never achieve anything of value unless we are living by faith, relying completely on God. And when we're living in that, then we are strong. And then we do much. But when we are making promises and thoughts that we have the ability to do basically anything in ourselves, we would achieve nothing. It's, it's, it's simple. You know, unless you repent, you won't be saved. That is, unless you confess your sins and know that you have an inability to be saved because of your sins, you won't be saved. But when you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us from all unrighteousness. When you confess, I'm a sinner without hope, then he saves you. Do you understand? Until that point, you're trusting in your own ability. So that's point one. Human self-confidences and promises and trying to overcome sin and all that stuff will always fall short. And my great example of that is, is, is a story I love to tell. We were in America in 2012 and there was, uh, we were in New York and you may not remember this now, it's distant uh, past. There was a cyclone they called Superstorm Sandy or something like that. Do you, do you remember that? And it flooded out the whole subways. It shut down at the start of winter, shut down power for, oh, it was weeks and weeks. And people were freezing and lifts weren't going and in in all the high rises across. Well, we were there um, the day before. (laughs) And we we were tourists around New York and we went to Central Park for about five minutes because we looked at the sky and we thought, we think we should get out of New York. And so we run around trying to... We had no hire car or anything. We were just... And we went trying to find a hire car, which was grossly overvalued because there's a cyclone bearing down. I think it was 2,400 American dollars for four days to hire this car. But we took it. And as we were going to the airport and the dark clouds are brewing and, and the wind is picking up, there on the side of the road was a man... And he was on his little piece of lawn with a leaf blower. (laughs) Blowing leaves. Yeah. And we just looked. And we thought, wow. And a day later, I think that whole area where we were was underwater from the flood, let let alone the wind that came before that. That's us with our strength before God. Here's a cyclone and we're a leaf blower with about 18 minutes of batteries. Okay. Point two. The depths of his suffering, this is in the garden, shows the fullness and completeness of his obedience and his resolute will. Jesus was under incredible physical and mental stress in the garden to the point of death. Don't just think that he was praying vividly and like, like we might pray. He says that, actually. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Do you say that when you're not to the point of death, when you're the son of God who knows things? He really was not just feeling anxious. 
there was a profound and unimaginable pressure. Now, in Luke, Luke is the only one who reports this. Luke's a doctor, you know. He's interested in this sort of stuff. He says, an angel appeared from heaven to strengthen him. In other words, Jesus didn't even have the strength to get up from his prayer. He needed help from that. And in his anguish, he prayed earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. And um, we had a friend who was a doctor in South Australia and he spoke of this when he preached one time of a human condition which they call hematidrosis. There we go. I, I know something, I learnt it. It's where blood excretes in, through the pigments in sweat. It's a real condition. It's, it's very rare, uh, but the sweat actually becomes as blood. It's, it when, happens when a person is facing death or an extremely highly uh, stressful condition. And um, some cases of it, documented medical cases, have been uh, people have done this just before being executed. During the World War II bombing blitz, pe- people in London, uh, this happened to. Uh, a woman being raped and a sailor who was broke into blood sweat during a, a huge storm at sea. So it happens not in a place where you're kind of having a bad day. This happens at a point where your body is under stress to the point of death. Physical, mental and undoubtedly spiritual stress. Now, Jesus had told his disciples many times, I'm going to Jerusalem and there I'll die. There I'll be put to death by the, by the leaders and the chief priests, hands of wicked men. He knew this. Six days before the Passover, in John's Gospel, Jesus says this, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Jesus is facing here. Sometimes when people say he he was afraid to be going to the cross, he was afraid to die, he was afraid of nails and things like that. Those things are very small, even though they are massive, obviously, compared to the pressure he was facing where he was about to come under what he calls the cup of suffering, which is the wrath of God against sin. He was to come under God's anger for our sin. Not just because he's facing some sort of physical suffering. There's something far deeper than that going on here. I say this because I've heard many people say, oh, this is kind of Jesus having second thoughts and he's a bit worried. Second thoughts, yeah, right. And then, and then the sermon often goes, we all have second thoughts sometimes, but we can get over them. No, no, no. You see, Jesus was about to face the, the most excruciating pain of all humanity. And I'll talk about that in a minute. The wrath of God for sin. Not just pain, physical. He was about to face the worst that could or ever has happened to a person. And he says... Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What you will. He knows God can do everything. He knows God is his beloved father. He calls him Abba Father. That's kind of like the family word for father, the close and intimate word, the obedient trust. 
and he resolutely does God's will. He does what no human being has ever or could do. He does what none of us or any other person in history would do. He is obedient to God. Where we have no strength or ability to be obedient, he does on our behalf what we could never do. And his firm resolve is to do this, to submit to the Father's will. This is like, I mean, I know if we read the book of Mark, there's been a lot of miracles. You don't see a miracle bigger than this. This is the biggest of all miracles. Here is a man who does the Father's will to the point of death, yes, to the point of receiving the suffering of the sins of humanity. And there is a massive stress and pressure in this moment. And he accepts it. This shows the absolute fullness and completeness of his obedience. No one has been obedient as he has. Only one. The third thing is the death of his suffering shows the fullness of atonement, of the overcoming of sin. You see, I said there, he is about to face not just crucifixion, but the separation and alienation from God the Father. Jesus was the perfect man. He was also the perfect son of God. He had lived not just in the first few years of his life, the first 30 years, but for the infinity before that, he had always been in absolutely perfect communion in a love relationship with the Father forever. There had never been a hint of sin or anything between the Father and the Son. Nothing at all. Complete communion. And soon he was to cry on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus on the cross was completely abandoned, forsaken, lonely, completely alone, completely separated from his father after only ever having perfect communion with him. He was abandoned. Why? By the father's will. Why? Because the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, you see. Spiritual death where you're opposed to the living and holy God. That's why um, uh, Paul would say in Ephesians 2, when we were dead in our sins. He's not talking about when we're physically dead. There's a far worse death than physical death. That's a spiritual death. That's a separation from God. And the worst place you can ever be is separated from God for eternity. And that's That's forever. What happened was Jesus on the cross abandoned because he became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God, the Father, made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, who had only ever been perfect, to be sin for us. He took all of our sins and he became cursed by God so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's what people call the great exchange. It's like, you've got this and I've got that and we exchange. 
We give him all of our sins and he bears it. And what does he give us? Sorry? Redemption. Righteousness. Obedience. How perfect was Jesus? Absolutely perfect. Through faith in him, all of our sins are gone. Yes, he's taken them. And what has he given us? Perfect righteousness. How perfect? As perfect as Jesus. If it was anything less than that, then when God looks at you, firstly, your prayers are never going to get to him. He can't listen to the prayers of sinners, right? Through Jesus, he has given us a righteousness which is an obedience, which is a perfection that only he's done. Now, about now, if you're not going, woo in your heart, there's something wrong with you. Do you see how good this is? This is not just me telling you how you're all completely rotten and stuffed. Yeah, that's true. But through Christ, you're giving something which brings you to a point of absolute beauty where you can be so good that God could say, you are my children and I am your father. And you can pray to me as Jesus did, Father, and know him. What a place. The great exchanges happen. The ransom has been paid. What was the ransom? The life of the Son of God. He paid the ransom and we were brought back to God. That's redeemed and given the perfect obedience, the perfect acceptance. Just stop for a minute and think this. If you trust in Christ, God looks at you and he loves you and he will always accept you. Can you believe that? That's the truth. If you don't have faith in Christ, that's very, very bad. Let just, let's put it that way. So if Jesus then did what we couldn't do and submitted perfectly to God, that must mean that atonement, that restoration, has happened fully and completely because if he did the Father's will and the Father's will was to bring salvation to the world, that means if he did it perfectly, the plan of salvation has been fulfilled perfectly, salvation's been achieved perfectly and fully, and that means we have the full, complete obedience of Jesus. There was a garden way back at the start of the Bible, wasn't there? Adam and Eve were there, and they showed perfectly the inability to obey God. And in this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, came a man who not only obeyed, but then through his obedience, fully redeemed humanity from eternal damnation. The redemption of mankind is not a light thing. It was hard fought. It was agonising. And you see, really, if, if, if you've, I don't know, some people are married here and some people have, had, have someone that they love and someone can tell you, I love you. They can tell you I love you a thousand times. Sometimes people do. They get all schmaltzy and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, there's lots of love. When do you know love? When someone suffers. When someone suffers for you, then you know it's real love, not just in the words. Yeah, Let us not love with words and tongue, but with actions and in truth, says John, in 1 John. 
Well, no one has suffered more than this. No one has loved more than this. No one has loved you more than this because he suffered fully for you. This was the beginning and we'll talk about uh, the cross over the next couple of weeks. But the Bible tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Actually, it's Hebrews 9.22 says, In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The Hebrews has been going through, you know, there was a sacrifice here and the sacrifice there and there was this thing, they did thing, but everything had blood. Because without the blood... There's no forgiveness of sins. And Jesus is shedding blood in the garden and he shed his blood on the cross. And that means there is forgiveness. And it is our only hope and it's a firm hope. And the thing that makes it most firm for us is it's not found in our ability. It's not found in our will and obedience. It's not found in our strength. It is completely found in his ability in his resolute will, in his complete obedience, in his submissive strength when he submitted to the Father, when he obeyed fully and he suffered completely and perfectly more than any man has ever suffered or ever will under the wrath of God. That means he has brought complete salvation. Can you see the the fullness of his suffering is the only thing will actually give us assurance in the long run. Because if he has suffered fully and taken every sin, then that means every sin must be gone. And if he's given us the righteousness and restored us to the Father, that means we must be restored. Yep. Don't you want to trust in Jesus? Please trust in Jesus. He is God's perfect son and he is our wonderful saviour. He has made atonement once and for all. I'm going to pray. Father, we want to thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he did what we could never do. Father, it humbles us to say that we can't achieve these things and we, we hate the way that it takes away our pride. But we know in our hearts it's true. We can't achieve our salvation or our goodness or any other thing. And so today we just confess we've sinned against you. We have not loved you as we should. We have not submitted to you. We've built lives where we're at the very centre and not you. And Father, as we confess that, we can only do it because we know of the greatness of your forgiveness and the fullness that's come through your will, through your plan and through Jesus, your son. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for doing for us what we could never do. And Father, I pray that you would bless us with the knowledge of this completed work that we might live our days in complete assurance because of what you've done.
And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.